there were two friends, a uh, chicken and a pig, and uh, they were walking along as they saw a, a big billboard in front of them that said, help feed the hungry. And this really struck the two friends, and the, the chicken turned to the pig and said, you know what, I think we should donate some bacon and eggs. And the pig said to the chicken, look, that, that's all very well for you. For you, that's just a contribution. For me, it's total commitment. If John 12, our reading today, speaks of anything, it speaks of the total commitment of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, it's a bit like a moment where the sun rises on this reality. The other morning, I went out for a run in Bangor and round the, the pier, and there was a gorgeous sunrise. It was just really a deep orange glow over the town, and uh, just a, a beautiful, I suppose, foretaste of spring uh, with a little bit of warmth in the air. And in a way, this passage in John chapter 12 is like a moment of sunrise. The Old Testament often speaks about the light of God emerging and shining uh, over the earth. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60 begins with the verses, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn." John has been telling us about this all along. He starts his gospel. In chapter 1, he talks about the true light that gives light to everyone is, was coming into the world. And this theme of light is laced all the way through John's gospel. And Jesus often speaks to his disciples in terms to do with light and darkness. And yet this moment is a moment that Jesus, who is steeped in the Scriptures and knows the Scriptures and has studied the Scriptures and memorized Scriptures, He knows that this is a significant moment whenever some Greeks, some Gentiles come to some of Jesus' disciples and ask if they can speak to Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, bring them here. He says, uh, that this is a significant moment. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And so this is a moment that Jesus recognizes, and John recognizes in his gospel, is like a sunrise happening. It's like before this, the hour has not yet come. In John chapter 2, Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the wedding at Canaan of Galilee, says, will you, will you please do something about this crisis? And Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, and yet He acts in mercy. John chapter 7, the brothers and sisters of, of Jesus, um, they, they challenge Him to say, surely you want to go up to this festival, because if you want to be a public figure, surely this is the thing to do. 
And Jesus says to them, you don't understand. Any, any time will do for you, but my hour, my time has not yet come. And so this theme runs through John's gospel about the timing, and everyone else is, is unaware of it apart from Jesus. He is the one who recognizes what's happening, who recognizes the signs, and he sees these Greeks, these Gentiles coming to ask to speak to him as a very significant moment. He realizes the light, the light of Christ, the light of the Father in him has just emerged over the horizon, and the light is illuminating the world. And immediately he brings his disciples, strangely, right to the heart of how that's going to happen. As soon as he says the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he uses this analogy in which he talks about seeds dying and bringing about multiplication. You see, Jesus, being the light of the world, came in order to illuminate darkness. It wasn't light for just light's sake. It was light sent to illuminate darkness. The darkness could not overcome it. It could not comprehend it. But the light came into the world to illuminate the darkness. That's why Christ came. And so Jesus is telling us that the route that he will take, the path that he will go on, the, what, the way that he will bring this light fully into the world to bring that warmth and life uh, which we all need was by going into the place of death, of being buried under the ground and in that place like a seed dying. It's amazing that every time you know, we see like a, a large horse chestnut tree, perhaps uh, at a time of year that's right uh, in the autumn time, seeing all sorts of um, all sorts of ways in which um, the, the way that uh, those horse chestnuts come about, that actually it's, it's an opportunity um, for uh, thousands and thousands of seeds to emerge, thousands and thousands of, of horse chestnuts to, uh, to, to come on the tree. It's amazing to think that among the roots of that huge tree, there are the remains of one little conquer, one little seed, one little horse chestnut. And Jesus was telling us that the way that this life and proliferation and multiplication would come about was to be by Him dying, being buried, and in that place, a miracle happening, and life coming from it, and life growing, and multiplication happening. And so he explains to the disciples how light is going to emerge into the world. He recognized that this moment of the nations coming to him as he was in Jerusalem at the festival of Passover was a very significant moment. John also told us from the start of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And so Jesus has known as he's approached Passover that this would be the time when he would go to his death, that he, the light of the world, would stare and step into the darkness in order to illuminate it. And not surprisingly, he says in this passage that that deeply troubles him. All of us have a human instinct to stay alive, and to overcome that requires something amazing. And so Christ, of his own volition, decided to step into the darkness 
and overcome the darkness through the life-giving, self-offering love of God. And so, throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in Romans chapter 6, when Paul the Apostle is describing to us what does Christian life look like, he uses this picture of going down into the place of death in our baptism, of putting aside our old life and rising to new life in Christ. You see, the way that we enter into this life, the way that we follow Jesus, the way we as servants follow in His footsteps is by going the same way He went. Yes, His, his death and His life are unique his sacrifice was a once for all for all of us. But nonetheless, we too are called to put our old life behind us and to step into the place of dying to self and rising to life in Christ. That's what our baptism is about. It's about drowning our old self metaphorically, spiritually, and stepping into that place of fullness of life in Christ. And that's only possible to the death of Jesus Christ. It's only possible through the life of Christ, the resurrection life of Christ. And so we come to this moment, a very significant moment, whenever the Jews have gathered in their thousands in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. It's a festival that lasts for eight days. It runs and includes two Sabbaths, one at each end. And during those eight days, all sorts of festivities and prayers and uh, meals together, and then at the end of Passover, there comes this commemoration moment of remembering the people of Israel being brought by God through Moses out of Egypt uh, to be freed from slavery in the Exodus, to be brought through the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea, and out into the place of liberty, out into the place of life. And so, in this place is the place where life is going to spring up and be offered to all mankind through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, and John is showing us that he is going to the Passover in order to give his life for the people. During this period, Jesus stays and goes in and out of Jerusalem from the little town, the little village of Bethany. Bethany means literally the house of the poor. Beth is the word for house. Uh, Bethlehem is the house of bread. Beth, Annie, is the house of the poor. It, it tells us in the temple scroll that was discovered at Qumran that there was provision made for there being three places to care for the sick to the east of Jerusalem. They had to be over a mile out of the city because uh, nothing seen as unclean was allowed to be even within a one-mile radius of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Such at that time was the view of, of the nature of sickness, that sickness had to be removed out of sight and out of the way. Part of it, of course, was to also safeguard lives in terms of uh, reducing the spread of leprosy. But nonetheless, it must have been very difficult in I, any of these places which had to be outside a radius of a mile. And so Bethany lies about uh, nearly two miles, 1.8 miles outside Jerusalem. Today, it is a, 
a quite large city with several thousand people or, um, or just a, a very large town. But in those days, it was uh, quite small in size. Here's a, a colorized picture from the year 1890 of Bethany. And you can see it's a, it's a very humble and small place and perhaps uh, very little changed in the uh, 1900 years from the time of Jesus being there and the time when this photograph was taken. Today, uh, the town is better known by its Arabic name, which is Al-Ezria, which actually means the place of Lazarus. Interesting that 2,000 years later, in Arabic, the town is called the place of Lazarus. Last week, we heard that it was from Bethany that, that Lazarus and Mary and Martha healed. It was in, in Bethany, this house of the poor, like a, like a hospice outside the precincts of Jerusalem where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And Jesus had frequently been there. He'd frequently gone there because he's built up this friendship with this little family, uh, Lazarus and his two sisters. Last week, we heard the amazing account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This week, we're, we're here back in Bethany, six days before the Passover, and Jesus travels in and out from Bethany as uh, his death approaches. And uh, during this moment, um, there are all sorts of responses to Jesus that we read about in this chapter. There are people who, who, who believe in him um, because of his miracles, because of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And yet there are many people who will not make that public. They'll not tell people because they're afraid of the Pharisees. And in contrast to that, there are responses in which there are very public displays of worshiping Jesus and serving Jesus. So I want to take us back for a moment to the very start of this chapter 12, because it tells us about different responses to, of thankfulness to Jesus. The first one I want to talk about is the fact that Martha serves. And all of these are, they're important ways to serve the Lord. So often we, we spend time contrasting the worship of Martha against the worship of Mary. But the reality is, that there are so many different facets to how we express our thankfulness to God. Martha serves, and from the various uh, accounts throughout the Gospels, we get a bit of a picture as to who Martha is. She's practical. She's well-organized. She loves to serve people. And uh, there's probably very little doubt that, that Martha is is strenuously involved in making this meal happen in Bethany. We're not actually sure as to whose house it was at. If you read carefully, it tells us the meal happens in Bethany, where Mar Martha and Mary and Lazarus come from. It doesn't say that it's at their house, but nonetheless, it does tell us that Martha serves. And Jesus tells us, my Father will honor the one who serves me. Through this meal that there's probably little doubt that Martha has been instrumental in, Jesus is honored. We wouldn't even be reading about this if it weren't for the fact 
that this meal was being held in Jesus' honor. And no doubt, a lot of work and expense has gone in to throwing this party. In that place, there's also an example that Martha gives of what it means to serve other people, what it means to to strenuously go about serving, serving Jesus and serving other people as well. So Jesus is honored, people are fed, community develops as it so often does when we eat together, and there's this example of service that's modeled. Martha is serving because she's filled with faith. If you remember from last week, it was she, full of faith, who said to Jesus, even though Lazarus was dead, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha was filled with faith, and she had this servant heart. We know from Luke chapter 10, and any of us will know who have been involved in any type of service, that there are potential pitfalls with this aspect of worship. It's the pitfall of becoming distracted. It's the pitfall of focusing on the task, or even worse, of us ourselves as we perform the task. And as we take our eyes, if we take our eyes off Jesus having become distracted, then we we find that tiredness and disillusionment and frustration creep in. And what we tend to do in that place of frustration is that we tend to look for someone to blame. Because all of a sudden, the joy of service has diminished or gone. And in that place, we, we know that well Uh, documented moment in Luke chapter 10 where Martha says to Jesus, tell my sister to help out here. And she gets a rebuttal from Jesus because Mary has chosen the place of worship and listening and discipleship. It's not saying the place of service is not a good place. What it's saying is the place that Martha has got to beyond service, beyond the place of focusing on Jesus is not a good place to go to. The danger of serving is if we cease to look at Jesus and focus on ourselves as the center of the task. This morning, perhaps the Lord is calling you and I into a place of service with our eyes fixed on Him. And to do that in all sorts of different moments in our lives, in fact, with every moment 24-7 of our lives, to be about serving God and to serve, serve Him with thankful hearts and to keep our eyes fixed on Him, not to become distracted, not to become disillusioned, and not to enter into the place where we have become the center of the task. So Martha serves. Mary, her sister, she gives. At the heart of our response to God is the willingness to give to God what is precious to us. We heard this morning about, um, you know, people responding to God in worship. All throughout the Old Testament, there's wonderful examples of, like, Hannah uh, giving her child to God uh, to serve the Lord, to give Samuel to the Lord, and to say, may he be particularly uh, here in the temple to serve the Lord. With Mary, 
She is moved. She is captivated. She wants to express her devotion to Jesus. And so she breaks open this alabaster jar, and there's this sense of no going back. There's this sense of, of, of breaking open this jar and just expressing sheer devotion through giving of what is precious, perhaps the most expensive and precious item she owned, certainly worth about a year's wages. And in a place called Bethany, the town, the village of the poor, that would have been considered to be a small fortune. And so, as Mary, through her devotion, gives what is precious to Jesus. She cracks open this alabaster jar. She, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And this causes a stir for two reasons. The first reason is the expense. This is a place where I imagine people would have been experiencing all sorts of challenges due to poverty and, and hunger. And yet, Mary, in a single moment of devotion, pours out thousands and thousands of, of our pounds worth of devotion to Jesus in the form of this perfume. The, the perfume could have been sold and been used to feed many, many people for a long period of time. But in this moment of giving, Mary gives herself in worship to Jesus Christ. The second reason why it would have caused such a stir among those who are at this dinner party is because Mary unfurled her hair in order to dry the feet of Jesus. It's difficult for us in our modern culture to understand how, how shocking this would have been for those who were gathered there. Perhaps uh, one analogy today would be that at a dinner party, a woman would take her skirt off and she would use it to dry the feet of Jesus. Perhaps if we imagine the response to that today, we might start to get an idea of what it would have been like for the people in the room at that gathering. A woman at that time only ever unfurled her hair for her husband. It was seen as a deeply intimate act. And so Mary doing this was a deeply intimate act people would have been aghast at what was happening before their eyes. We don't know, perhaps Martha and others are also filled with indignation, but I wonder if Martha holds her tongue because last time she spoke, she realized she'd made a mistake. Martha remains silent. It's Judas who speaks. And I imagine Judas isn't speaking just on his own. I imagine Judas is also speaking what is on the minds of many people who are gathered together to eat. Perhaps because he's too embarrassed to mention the social taboo of a woman's hair, he focuses in on the fact that this could have been sold, this perfume could have been sold, and the money used to feed many poor people. the heart of worship, as well as there being service, there is also giving. There is also giving what is precious to us. It's sort of a, it, it's an abandonment where we, we don't consider the cost because 
it's, it seems irrelevant to us because of the, of the heart of worship, the heart of love that is responding. The danger for us as onlookers on that worship is that we may stand in judgment upon it. We may decide that it is inappropriate. One of the people that had the most profound influence on me was a Church of Ireland minister who felt that God called him to live a celibate life. And so he remained unmarried and he, he served Christ as a celibate Church of Ireland minister throughout his the entire life. One of his reasonings was he felt that if he was to give himself entirely to the church, then he, he felt that um, he could do that best if he wa wasn't also giving himself to a wife and a family. He had a profound impact on me. He had a profound impact on a very many people. And yet I know that there were people, particularly at that time in his 20s, whenever I think there may have been women who were wanting, uh, hoping that uh, he might look their way and, and, and become married. He said it was an incredible shame that he never married. So often we can choose to judge what another person does as an act of worship. And we diminish ourselves greatly if we do that. I wonder for us, as we've seen people live a life perhaps of poverty, chastity, and obedience, I wonder if sometimes we've looked down on that or perhaps we haven't understood it and we've, we've cast an aspersion on it even in our own minds. I wonder if we've seen people enter into a place of silence and prayer, sometimes over hours or days, perhaps again we wonder, what is all that about? Why is that person doing that? Why would that person fast and pray? What good is there in that? Or perhaps the person who puts their hands in the air or dances in the presence of the Lord. It is often such a temptation for us to judge the worship of someone else because we don't understand it. The danger, of course, from Mary's point of view is the fact that sometimes in that place of giving, although it's important for us to give whatever it is the Lord has called us to give, sometimes we can become insensible to the thoughts and the lives of others. Or we can uh, not be involved in practically serving others because we are so caught up purely in devotion to the Lord. I think worship in its fullest sense incorporates service. It incorporates just single-minded devotion to the Father. And it also incorporates what Lazarus did in his worship. Often we don't think about Lazarus when it comes to worship. And yet here was Lazarus who a number of weeks before was dead and now is alive and well and is reclining at table and is being served. And he too is present as Mary cracks open the perfume and pours it over Jesus' feet and dries Jesus' feet with her hair. And as John says in that beautiful line in this passage, and the fragrance of the perfume filled the whole house. 
and Lazarus in that place, it tells us he was reclining, he was resting, he was being served. Now, before we, we may think, well, I like that type of service. That sounds like a great way to be, to be served as a place of service. And yet, what we're told in this passage is that the life of Lazarus is one that has a particular calling on it. You see, Lazarus went into the place of sickness. He went into the place even of death. And as he, as he reclines at the table, I, I imagine that there are all sorts of conversation happening. I imagine there was not a shortage of conversation. People have been asking Lazarus, what was it like to be dead, Lazarus? What was it like to be in the tomb? What, what did you hear when Jesus called you out? What was it like stepping out into the light covered in bandages? I'm sure the conversation was flowing. And I also imagine that if not already, Lazarus have been asking many questions. What happened at my funeral? What was said? It must have been an amazing time, and the story of Lazarus, we're told, is a story that brings many people to faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, the enemies of Jesus become the enemies of Lazarus. And so Lazarus, as he reclines and rests at table, has become a marked man. Not only are people plotting to kill Jesus, they're now plotting to kill Lazarus. But Lazarus remains at the table. He continues to tell his story, even though his life is under threat. Perhaps one of the reasons why the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead only appears in John's gospel is I wonder if the other gospels were written and released whenever Lazarus was still alive and his life was still under threat. But by the time John wrote his gospel, Lazarus had gone finally to be with Christ. Lazarus worshipped in the place of rest, and yet in the place of rest, he continued to tell his story despite the fact that his life was under threat. All these are ways that we worship the Lord. At different times in our lives, we may be called into one more than the other, but nonetheless, they're all aspects of worship aspects in which we serve energetically, in which we give generously, and in which we rest completely. All this is what it means to be a worshiper of the Lord. One of the memory verses that we've had in our 40-day challenge since the start of it about a week and a half ago is that wonderful verse in Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, to strengthen the hearts of those who uh, strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him just about got that memory verse the lord is actively seeking those whose hearts are fully committed to him for us to be those people requires us to be people who are willing to worship the Lord like Martha, like Mary, and like Lazarus, and not to shy away from any of that. And as we do that, the Lord will work in us and also work through us in this wonderful work of multiplication, the wonderful work of the kingdom of God's unconquerable love, extending and expanding like a little conquer 
flourishing into a massive horse chestnut tree covered in thousands of conquerors because that is the multiplicatory effect of the kingdom of God. I want to finish with reading out the words that were appeared on a note that uh, were written a number of decades ago by a young Zimbabwean Christian. He was a, he was a preacher who was Soon after he wrote this note, he was martyred for his faith. And afterwards, when his belongings were being gathered together, this note was found in his office. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My presence makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in His presence, walk by patience, and I'm uplifted in prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, and my way is rough. My companions are few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach all I know, and work till He stops me. And when He comes for His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Is your banner clear? Do you worship like Lazarus, Mary, Martha? Are you a person who serves energetically? Are you a person who gives generously? Are you a person who rests completely? I wonder, in the midst of all that's been happening in recent months and years, I wonder if you feel a bit sometimes like a person who would have lived in Bethany 2,000 years ago, perhaps you feel le you're laid aside by sickness. Perhaps you feel you're in a place that is forgotten. You feel that you're in a place like Bethany, which is out of sight of the place of the presence of God on the Temple Mount. 
Well, I want to assure you, Christ comes to you. Just as Christ went to Bethany, the house of the poor, Christ has come to us in our poverty in order to make us rich. And to do so, he invites us to follow his path, the path that involves dying to self and being raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the eyes of the Lord are ranging, seeking throughout the whole earth, looking for those who heart, whose hearts are fully committed to him. Just like that Zimbabwean Christian, the eyes of the Lord are looking throughout the whole earth for people who are willing to serve and give and rest. My challenge for myself, my challenge for all of us is to be those type of worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, who are caught up day by day in the power and joy of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who invite afresh the Spirit of God into our lives and become animated by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the multiplication of the love of God happens in us and all around us. Christ has called us to be a people in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this country, in the midst of this town, in the midst of our families, in the midst of our workplace, in the midst of our communities. He's calling us to die to self and live the risen life of Christ, to receive forgiveness and fresh life. So as together we do this, as together we live in the life of Christ, we live out our baptismal promises to lay aside the old life and to live the new life and to live 100% all in to his praise and glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, all that we are, all that we have, all that we could be and will be, we offer to you. We offer you ourselves afresh today. We want to follow in your footsteps and as lights of Christ to be willing boldly to step out into the places of need and poverty and sickness and loss and lostness and to proclaim the story of Jesus Christ in our lives, to serve people humbly, practically with love and to live lives of devotion, the fragrance of which fills the whole house, the fragrance of which fills this whole town, the fragrance of which fills this whole nation. All for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing our final song of worship. You may want to kneel. You may want to stand. You may want to sit. You know, a, a wonderful opportunity that we have during this time is that perhaps in the places of worship, perhaps you sometimes feel, I'd love to have the liberty in worship to, to just sit quietly while people are singing and with my eyes closed. I'd love to have the liberty to stand and to sing at the top of my voice. I'd love to have the liberty to stand and 
to, to put my hands in the air. I'd love to have a liberty to dance. I'd love to have a liberty to kneel. I'd love to have a liberty to lay on the floor, prostrate before the Lord. I'd love to have that liberty. Well, in your own home is the place to start that. Let's have freedom in our worship of Christ. Let's have a freedom for the audience of one, our Heavenly Father. Let's move into a new place of liberty and abundance in worship through Christ our Lord. Amen.